Hey, it's it's in a book. Hey, it's in a book. Hey, uh, yeah, yeah. It's been a while. Um, kind of, kind of forgot how to do this. Um, so I'm I'm in Michigan right now. Um, that's part of the reason why the podcast has been so few and far between. Uh, we can we can talk about that some other time. But um, I uh, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm doing a show. I'm doing it right now. Um, a friend uh, with whom I recorded this interview quite some time ago. I've been putting him on forever. Uh, it's just been some weird, strange, existential recalcitrance just combined with the lack of time, I guess. But um, in the manner of, uh, of Zen, uh, I've really gotten back into my meditative practices. Uh, I'm going to shut up and do a show. Hey, it's in a book. I am Lawrence Rouse, your host. I am in Flint, Michigan, as opposed to Raleigh, North Carolina, where we usually uh, start the show from. And uh, you are listening to It's in a Book. We are a podcast devoted to chasing down pretty much anyone we can catch and asking them five questions uh, about books. So uh, this episode, we managed to chase down a friend and colleague of mine. His name is Brett Wiedeker. And uh, he answered our questions, and then at the end, uh, we're going to listen to a short selection from Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, Now, of some relevance is that I recently visited uh, Indianapolis, and I saw the Kurt Vonnegut Museum there. His family was actually very, very prominent in uh, in Indianapolis, and and it's really interesting. So... um, Without any further uh, gum flapping from me, we're going to head right into that interview with Brett. It's a good one. We'll see you after the break. Okay, so our interview this fortnight is with my friend and colleague. His name is Brett Wiedeker. He is uh, sitting right across from me right now wearing the most, uh, <laughs> I don't know, sardonic expression ever. But uh, if you know Brett, you'd know that that's, uh, that's pretty normal. So uh, rather than boring you to death talking about him, I'm going to let him do the talking. Um, Brett, you want to say hello? Hey, how are you all doing? Thank you very much. Y'all, wow, a little bit of Southern diction there. I like it. I like it. Don't Don't even start that rumor. <laughs> Brett is from uh, Philadelphia, and even I am though, not from Philadelphia. Uh, I'm sorry, Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Pennsylvania. Philadelphia is part of New Jersey. They right. just don't know. It. <laughs> I just cursed at him. I was reading something about Philadelphia. What, what was the guy? Uh, the the poor uh, uh, newspaper oh, yeah, billionaire the, the, who went down. Yeah, uh, in the plane. Plane or, actually, actually never, never went. Up. Never even went up. Right, right, yeah. So uh, I, I got confused there for a second. Pardon me, Brett. Um, at any rate, I was just going to say that uh, I've already briefed you on the five questions uh, that we'll be discussing this evening. You have okay. And now uh, for the surprise question. Um, if you'd ever listened to the podcast, you would know about the surprise question. I actually uh, have listened to parts of the podcast. <laughs> Obviously not the interview. Um, the surprise question is not really that much of a surprise. I like to start with the interview with, uh, 
with the interviewee that would be you in this case, uh, telling us a little bit about him or herself and uh, how they came to be roughly in the triangle area. Um, you are, are presently, you know, in the triangle, uh, however much you may not like that. So uh, <laughs> tell yeah. us your story. I was essentially shanghai uh, <laughs> No, I've been in the Army for, uh, it'll be 23 years in July. Uh-huh. So, and I've spent most of that uh, incarcerated in the South. <laughs> uh, but I was in 10th group, and when I I got the bonus, the hundred and or the uh, seventy five thousand dollars bonus, the blood money, the blood money, they made me uh, they made me come to SWIC. So that's how I'm back here. Right now, uh, SWIC for for anyone uh, who's not familiar is the uh, Special Warfare uh, school, Center and School. Center and School, right? So it's where uh, we train all the uh, future special operators out there. And Brett is uh, is currently a, a trainer slash instructor slash writer uh, there at the uh, medical course uh, where I work. So, um, any anything else you'd like to tell us about your uh, your long journey from uh, Pennsylvania? Well, I actually, uh, I've been, in, like I said, I've been in the Army 23 years, so I haven't, uh, I haven't actually lived in Pennsylvania in over two decades, so. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's been so a while. I, I've been, I've been in North Carolina for probably, out of the last 10 years that I've been in group, probably four of them. Right, right. Okay, so we can pretty much call you uh, one of our own then. Don't even say <laughs> now. You're just being rude. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's let's get into the questions. Um, All right. The first question, of course, is uh, um, it, it's a busy world these days. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you find the time to read? Well, my kids are a little bit older now. Uh, my son just turned 14, and my daughter just turned 12. So they are not as interested in spending time with the parents. Mm. And we've got a fully stocked game room, although my daughter loves to read as well. Right. And their mother is a voracious reader. Right. Um, so I find time, a lot of times in the evenings, mm-hmm. I, I can find some time to read. Um, and it it's not too hard. It's not as hard as it used to be. Right, right. Yeah, once they start to, uh, you know, push away a little bit, I'm sure that it frees your hands up a little. Well, they're just not interested in that anymore. Right, well, right. Well, not as do you, do you read in bed at night? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. I, you know, I, I've gotten to the point where I can read in bed a little bit, but for the longest time, I, I'm just so, or I was just so tired at the end of the day. For some reason, just the, the idea of reading in bed was distasteful. If I could ever start a book, I was fine, but. Being in the South kind of wears on you. <laughs> it was probably easier when you were up in Washington State. Maybe, maybe it was. Maybe it was. Uh, we we had a really awesome little bedroom up there that was really conducive to that. It was kind of like a, a tent or a teepee, um, you know, with the sort of gabled uh, ceiling. Uh, I think gabled is the proper term. It was, it was kind of shaped like this, and it was really low. So there wasn't a whole lot you can do in our bedroom standing. Um, but uh, it, w- it was pretty sweet. Okay. Yeah. So, at any rate, um, we'll move on to uh, our second question, which is, um, how do you decide what to read? Um, I went through a phase where I didn't read much fiction. Like, when I was a kid, you know, before the internet and everything, I read mm-hmm. constantly. Uh, then I got older, and I got away from reading and more into surfing and 
like web surfing and stuff, not like real things. surfing, like on a board. Yeah, no, never. <laughs> okay, okay, I was about to say. <laughs> Pasty pale white dude from Pennsylvania. <laughs> we hate the sun and fear the ocean. Right, right. <laughs> what was I thinking? Um, but I, I went through a phase recently where I didn't read much fiction. It was I was I had this idea. I'm going to read all this nonfiction and I'm going to learn and in this. And sometimes that stuff gets dry or I lose interest. Mm-hmm. And what happened is I ended up just not reading as much anymore. So then I started getting back into uh, fiction. And mostly what I read is I like science fiction. Right. Um, right. I'm a big fan of steampunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like I like science fiction that's really dense and has a, a good, strong science base. Right. right. Uh, I'm the guy that, like, when I go to a movie – and I watch something, my suspension of disbelief only goes so far. If I watch something happen, I go, that, that, that doesn't ha- it can't happen. Right. It doesn't work. So, so your science fiction has to have enough science to, to at least, uh. Right. So, you, you know, know, you get Asimov, you get, uh, Clark, um, and, and some of the others. They, they were scientists before they were writers. Right. So they end up putting out a good quality product that makes, sense right yeah that, that i try to write a little science fiction when i was younger um and that was usually the obstacle for me it was was I, I just never felt like i could make this science convincing enough um so i kind of gave it up yeah it's for, it's not easy That's no no it's, it's definitely not i mean and now and there's there are levels with regard to that whole thing you know yeah i, I mean a certain amount of fiction suspension of disbelief is going to be necessary i mean for instance uh uh, who was it? Uh, the guy who wrote Ender's Game. Uh, Orson, uh, Orson Scott, Scott Card. Card. Yeah. He had to create a means for instant communication over vast distances. Otherwise, the story just didn't work. Right. What did he call the Ansible? Or yeah, the Ansible. Right. Uh, right. And uh, so you know, maybe there's some good science behind that, but there's always something that you're gonna have to get around. I mean, the, the travel. I right. mean, he did he did it really well with the, the way he handled the travel. It just takes years, and he just. He did the math and it, it came out right. Right. Yeah, um, there are a lot of different ages and, and people. Right. You know, and then you have others who, uh, you know, they create, you know, hyperspace travel and stuff, which may or may not be possible. But, you right. know, you, you got to allow for something like that. Otherwise, science fiction tends to be strongly earthbound. Right, right. You know, and not to get completely off the subject or, or too far off the subject, rather, but you know how, like, you see those little weird headlines at the bottom of, like, real news stories or whatever? That right. They'll be in the far left-hand corner or sometimes down in the far right-hand corner. I saw one the other day, and, and I was on a, a fairly uh, reputable site. Maybe it was the New Republic or CNN or something like that, and it said something about the headline was something like, Scientists Find Ways to Reliably Teleport Data. Now, I'm not sure exactly what teleporting data means scientifically, but I didn't know if that was a real headline or if it was just like one of those teasers. No, but it, it sounds like the Ansible, right? No, it's, it's real. Um, and there is some good, there is some good work being done with, uh, quantum, well, quantum computing, but it's also quantum entanglement to where if you, I don't know all the parts of it. When you have two particles that are entangled and you change the spin of one, the other, the spin of the other one, instantly changes no mm-hmm. matter what the distance is it's the only thing that can oh, travel right. faster than light right um stop beating the table so they're they're trying to uh they're trying to figure out how to make that because it's it's very difficult to entangle right so that but if they could do that then 
you know, could, the, the digital aspect of it, because one turns one way, one instantly turns the other. At, at that point, it would be just a matter of doing the math. I, I right. It, 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 it becomes like a binary system. Like right. Up or down, you know, on or off. Exactly. Exactly. Sweet. Sweet. Okay. Well, uh, anything else you want to say about uh, how you decide what to read? I think uh, I interrupted you and got you off track there. No, I just, um, like I said, I, I like science fiction and I like I like really dense stuff. I like to think. I mean, every now and then I'll get something. Um, I read something. It was it was essentially steampunk called the the Buntline Special, and it took me like a couple hours to read this whole book because it was very it was very light reading, and that's okay once in a while. But for the most part, I, I like to I like to really get involved into it, and if it doesn't involve me, then I get bored. Right, right. Now tell me about this steampunk. Okay, steampunk is a genre wherein imagine all the fanciful inventions that they came up with in the Victorian era if they actually worked. Mm, mm. So you'll see steampunk. Um, one of my favorite writers is uh, Sherry Priest. And in her, um, it's, it's kind of like alternate history, but... Uh, the Civil War has been going on for 20-odd years with neither side winning, although the South is slowly starting to crack. Um, they're using weapons that absolutely did not exist and actually never have existed, but right. you know, steam-powered. Um, and she managed to work zombies into it mm, mm. because of something that went down in uh, it, that takes place in, uh, in Washington State, actually, in uh, uh, Seattle. Right. Uh, now, and as far as I know, they had absolutely no connection to the Civil War, correct? They did not, and they don't <laughs> there either. Um, it's In fact, people have gone there to get away from the Civil War. Um, but uh, it's – so that's – the main – the main uh, – the main thrust is it is the uh, it's it's Victorian era technology, except that it actually works the way right. that you know, yeah, these yeah. guys who dreamed it up wanted it to work. That that sounds really interesting. I'm gonna you have to uh, you know when we're done here, write down a couple of artists for me. Sherry Priest. Uh, I guess you don't have to write them down. I can just listen. Um, but uh, and and maybe you can give me a few more. Sure. In fact, um, if I can find a, a steampunk short story, maybe that's what we'll do for the reading for this episode. So you yeah, can there's. I have recommend a good actually one or two. at home. I have a book of steampunk short stories, I believe, or maybe I have it on my Nook account. I'll have to look. Right. Okay. Well, if it's one that you can loan out, you can send it to me. Certainly, and, uh, absolutely. And I'll, I'll read it for the uh, for our reading selection for this episode. So. Yep. Can do. Sweet. Sweet. Well, uh, the next question uh, I, I almost really don't need to ask you because uh, we, we've been hanging out together here uh, for the past month, and uh, I pretty much know the answer, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Um, how do you feel about books as objects? And uh, most of the focus with regard to this question is how you feel about paper versus digital books, but also, you know, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the books you have at home, whether you have enough, whether you want more. Um, so books as objects. I like books as objects but i don't have that many of them we got rid of a bunch honestly when we moved from uh colorado to um north carolina because the weight right we, right. we, uh, we actually I think, came out of pocket for a little bit because we had so much weight yeah yeah um so we got rid of it now my wife has a whole bunch of books i still have quite a few books and i do like to read right uh paper books it's just it's a lot more convenient to sit on my ipad and and, and read right and you know i can have 10 12 books you know 100 books whatever on there mm -hmm. available to me uh and it's easier to get a new one 
all I need is an internet connection and I can get a new one like that. Right, right. Um, Unless you have a Kindle, in which case you don't even really need it. I think they call it WhisperNet or something like that. Almost anywhere in the world you can, uh, you can get one. They have like their own weird thing. I, I'm probably lying about the technology, but they, well, that doesn't surprise me. They're, they're trying so hard to be cutting edge that they, they probably have outrun their headlights. I yeah. mean, they're already, you know, they've been talking about using drones to deliver, <laughs> to do deliveries. And I'm like, you know what? It's not even legal in the United States and won't be anytime soon. I hope not because, uh, yeah, trying to, trying to regulate that would, would be a nightmare. Well, and that's why they're not legal is because of the regulation. Right, right. Uh, but I do, I do like books as objects. Um, my wife has, she's a huge Stephen King fan. I personally can't stand Stephen King. <laughs> the way he writes, it seems to me like he's getting paid by the word. Right, right. There's a lot of extraneous crap in there. Oh, um, probably if you look at the money he's made over the years, it might add up that he's being paid by the word. But he's kicking out, for a long time, he was kicking out like a book every 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh... um, he's slowed down a lot now. Um, you just run out of crap, but she's, she's a huge fan and she has most of his books. I mean, she gets them on digital, but eventually she'll get them on, on hardback. And so we have most of his books. And then I have some other stuff. Um, you know, graphic novels aren't as good on, you know, digital. Right, you, right. You, you kind of need to, you kind of need to hold those. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But once we get settled, we'll probably start building our collection back up. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I'm torn, you know, like I, we, I, now I kind of feel like we have enough books. Like I kind of like seeing them, you know, out of the corners of my eyes. But, uh, you know, I, I'll always love the paper, but after a while it can get out of control. Like you can just kind of run out of space. So what? as a man, you have to have one room where there's a desk with a bunch of leather bound books behind it. <laughs> Absolutely. You don't even have to read or even, they don't even have to be real books. They just have to look like leather bound books. I agree. I the agree. It has to smell like old leather. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, all right. Well, we have arrived then at the uh, penultimate question here, which is, um, what's your favorite book of all time? Um, for the longest time it was Lord of the Rings. Uh, when I was a kid, I probably read it two or three times the whole series. Right. Which I just consider one book because I just got it as one book. But, right, right. Uh, nowadays, I would probably say it was a book called by Neil Stevenson called uh, Anathem. Uh, you know, the name Neil Stevenson sounds really familiar to me. Um, he wrote The Baroque Cycle, which uh, he uses a lot of historical figures in his books. Well, sometimes um, he's... He writes a lot of techno thrillers. Mm-hmm. He he was he's really on the cutting edge of technology with the way he writes. Um, he wrote uh, Snow Crash, which was, I guess, in the nerd community, it was kind of big. I liked it. it. I don't think it was his best book, but it was it was pretty good. The nerd community, yeah, because all the <laughs> because the way he deals with technology, specifically like internet, but everything he just, right. you know, and then there's the He's just, but he's another writer that, uh, I guess, I, I don't know if he was actually a scientist before he became a writer, but he definitely has a lot of a strong scientific background. Right, right. And, uh, and Anathem, it was, uh, when I first started reading it, I had just picked it at random. I was in the bookstore and I, the authors that I normally read were 
I already read all their stuff that they had available, so I tried. So I thought I'd try that, and at first I was like, it was so dense that it was hard to get into, but once I got into it, I could mm-hmm. not put that book down. Right, Anathema. Yep. Okay, I'm going to check into that too. It's uh, he he made up a different language, and the way he the way he deals with it, it's uh, it's not like where Tolkien made up you know Elvish and there's whole long sentences. It's just words. Mm-hmm. So it, it almost could be um, you could almost think of it like uh, like how we have words in the military that nobody else uses. That's kind of how it is with this. I mean, uh-huh. and, but he provides explanations and. It's it's a really really good book and it it's got kind of a twist to it. Right. Now is it is it free freestanding? I mean like are there is No, it, no, it's just it's by itself. Okay. I actually so would like to see more of it, but he He's done a couple of series but mostly he does standalone books. Right, right. Okay. Okay. Anathem. Sounds interesting. Um sweet, sweet. Well, uh, you know, it's funny uh, most people have a, myself included have a difficult time with that question, but uh you you had a couple of Couple of choices here. You narrowed it right down to. Yeah, that uh, I just that book made an impression on me. I and his other stuff is good. Don't get me wrong, but none of it is. That is definitely his his best book, and I, I always go back to that when I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking of you know I might even reread it. Right. Right. So yeah, like to see more like it. I mean, he he. There's parts where he has like an addendum, or a, not an addendum, but a. A footnote, and you have to go, and it, it it teaches you like some mathematic or scientific principle that is in the book. That if you don't if you don't understand it, you're going to have trouble right, getting right. it. How big a book is it? It's pretty big. It's uh, it's I want to say eight or nine hundred pages. Right. Whoa, whoa, very big. Yeah. Yeah. So, part of my yawn, folks. Uh, Brett and I are uh, hopping on a plane in the morning, so we're staying up all night. So. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not a slumber party. No, it's not a slumber party. It's just a very long day. Yeah, uh, it has a ton been. of work that's already been done and a little bit more to do. Um, so, all right. Well, uh, it looks like we uh, are pretty much at the end here. Uh, the final question is, what are you reading right now? All right. So um, I haven't been reading as much the last few weeks. Uh, I've actually gotten involved in my iPad and been doing something. But I just recently... I've been meaning to read uh, Moby Dick for the longest time. Ooh, you should. I, I, I read don't it a couple normally. Of years ago. I, I don't always get into the classics. Like if I never have to read Dickens again, that would be <laughs> way, way too soon. Right, right. I don't get the appeal. I like to think of myself as a reg- uh, as a reasonably literate and intelligent person, and Dickens is completely lost on me. Right. Uh, um, it's it's you know. But I like I like some of the classics and and I thought well Moby Dick is is a big one and it's a big one it's it's become a meme so I should probably check it out yeah um th- it's funny uh, and Arthur I think I talked about it in one of the very first podcasts I I did uh, um he wrote a book about reading Moby Dick which you know as if Moby Dick wasn't enough uh, in and of itself um, but that's what inspired me to go ahead and read it. Uh, and and certainly there are passages. I mean, like there's a ton of the book that's just about whaling, um, you know. So it's it gets to be a bit much every now and then again, uh, or every now and then rather, um, just a little too much whaling going on. But the the story itself and just the beauty of of Melville's writing is is really uh, incredible, really worth your time. Um, so 
you know, definitely dive in. Uh, you see what I did there? Um, and check it out. <laughs> wow. What's the I'm, saying? I'm sorry. <laughs> he who would, he who would pun would pick a pocket. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> if I was hungry enough. Awful. Just yeah. awful. Yeah. So, all right. Well, okay. uh, I guess this is the end. Uh, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for sitting down to talk to us. Glad to be here. And, uh, we, we meaning I will get this up on the web as soon as possible. Um, sometime here before the 15th of June, I'm, I'm completely reworking our, our website. So this, this podcast will be probably the first one that falls under the, uh, under the new website. Uh, okay. I've been fairly religious about keeping the, uh, the podcast updated on iTunes pretty much because, you know, that's how it gets out. That's how folks can listen to it. But I think I'm, I don't know, four or five episodes behind on the website, and, and I'm trying to drive some traffic there uh, over the next year or so. so. Sure. Yep. All right. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. All right. We'll, uh, we'll see you on the Internet whenever this right. arrives. Slaughterhouse-Five, or The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death, by Kurt Vonnegut, who, as an American infantry scout, or to combat as a prisoner of war, witnessed the firebombing of Dresden, Germany, the Florence of the Elbe, a long time ago, and survived to tell the tale. This is a novel somewhat in the telegraphic, schizophrenic manner of tales of the planet Trafalgar where the flying saucers come from. Peace. The cattle are lowing. The baby awakes. But the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. 1. All this happened, more or less. The war parts, anyway, are pretty much true. One guy I knew really was shot in Dresden for taking a teapot that wasn't his. Another guy I knew really did threaten to have his personal enemies killed by hired gunmen after the war, and so on. I've changed all the names. I really did go back to Dresden with the Guggenheim money, God love it, in 1967. It looked a lot like Dayton, Ohio. More open spaces than Dayton has. There must be tons of human bone meal in the ground. I went back there with an old war buddy, Bernard V. O'Hare, and we made friends with a cab driver who took us to the slaughterhouse where we had been locked up at night as prisoners of war. His name was Gerhard Muller. He told us that he was a prisoner of the Americans for a while. We asked him how it was to live under communism, and he said that it was terrible at first because everybody had to work so hard and because there wasn't much shelter or food or clothing. But things were much better now. He had a pleasant little apartment, and his daughter was getting an excellent education. His mother was incinerated in the Dresden firestorm. So it goes. He sent O'Hare a postcard at Christmas time, and here's what it said. I wish you and your family, also, as to your friend, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I hope that we'll meet again in a world of peace and of freedom in the taxi cab if the accident will. I like that very much, if the accident will. I would hate to tell you what this lousy little book cost me in money and anxiety 
in time. When I got home from the Second World War 23 years ago, I thought it would be easy for me to write about the destruction of Dresden, since all I would have to do would be to report what I had seen. And I thought, too, that it would be a masterpiece, or at least make me a lot of money, since the subject was so big. But not many words about Dresden came from my mind then. Not enough of them to make a book, anyway. And not many words come now, either, when I have become an old fart with his memories and his Paul Malls, with his sons full-grown. I think of how useless the Dresden part of my memory has been, and yet how tempting Dresden has been to write about, and I am reminded of the famous limerick. There was a young man from Stambol who soliloquized thus to his tool, You took all my wealth, and you ruined my health, and now you won't pee, you old fool. And I'm reminded, too, of the song that goes, My name is Jan Janssen. I work in Wisconsin. I work in a lumber mill there. The people I meet when I walk down the street, they say, What's your name? And I say, My name is Jan Janssen. I work in Wisconsin. And so on, to infinity. Over the years, people I've met have asked me what I'm working on, and I've usually replied that the main thing was a book about Dresden. I said that to Harrison Starr, the movie maker, one time, and he raised his eyebrows and inquired, Is it an anti-war book? Yes, I said, I guess. You know what I have to say to people when I hear they're writing anti-war books? No. What do you say, Harrison? I say, why don't you write an anti-glacier book instead? What he meant, of course, was that there would always be wars, that they were as easy to stop as glaciers. I believe that, too. And even if wars didn't keep coming like glaciers, there would still be plain old death. When I was somewhat younger, working on my famous Dresden book, I asked an old war buddy named Bernard V. O'Hare if I could come to see him. He was a district attorney in Pennsylvania. I was a writer on Cape Cod. We had been privates in the war, infantry scouts. We had never expected to make any money after the war, but we were doing quite well. I had the Bell Telephone Company find him for me. They are wonderful that way. I have this disease late at night sometimes involving alcohol and the telephone. I get drunk and I drive my wife away with a breath like mustard gas and roses. And then, speaking gravely and elegantly into the telephone, I ask the telephone operators to connect me with this friend or that one, from whom I have not heard in years. I got O'Hare on the line in this way. He is short, and I am tall. We were Mutt and Jeff in the war. We were captured together in the war. I told him who I was on the telephone. He had no trouble believing it. He was up. He was reading. Everybody else in his house was asleep. Listen, I said. I'm writing this book about Dresden. I'd like some help remembering stuff. I wonder if I could come down and see you and we could drink and talk and remember. He was unenthusiastic. He said he couldn't remember much. He told me, though, to come ahead. I think the climax of the book will be the execution of poor old Edgar Derby, I say. The irony is so great. 
A whole city gets burned down, and thousands and thousands of people are killed. And then this one American foot soldier is arrested in the ruins for taking a teapot. And he's given a regular trial, and then he's shot by a firing squad. Um, said O'Hare. Don't you think that's really where the climax should come? I don't know anything about that, he said. That's your trade, not mine. As a trafficker in climaxes and thrills and characterization and wonderful dialogue and suspense and confrontations, I had outlined the Dresden story many times. The best outline I ever made, or anyway the prettiest one, was on the back of a roll of wallpaper. I used my daughter's crayons, a different color for each main character. One end of the wallpaper was the beginning of the story, and the other end was the end, and then there was all that middle part, which was the middle. And the blue line met the red line, and then the yellow line, and the yellow line stopped because the character represented by the yellow line was dead, and so on. The destruction of Dresden was represented by a vertical band of orange cross-hatching, and all the lines that were still alive passed through it, came out on the other side. The end, where all the lines stopped, was a beet field on the Elbe, outside of Halley. The rain was coming down. The war in Europe had been over for a couple of weeks. We were formed in ranks, with Russian soldiers guarding us. Englishmen, Americans, Dutchmen, Belgians, Frenchmen, Canadians, South Africans, New Zealanders, Australians, thousands of us about to stop being prisoners of war. And on the other side of the field were thousands of Russians and Poles and Yugoslavians and so on, guarded by American soldiers. An exchange was made there in the rain, one for one. O'Hare and I climbed into the back of an American truck with a lot of others. O'Hare didn't have any souvenirs. Almost everybody else did. I had a ceremonial Luftwaffe saber, still do. The rabid little American I call Paul Lazaro in this book had about a quart of diamonds and emeralds and rubies and so on. He had taken these from dead people in the cellars of Dresden. So it goes. An idiotic Englishman who had lost all his teeth somewhere had his souvenir in a canvas bag. The bag was resting on my insteps. He would peek into the bag every now and then, and he would roll his eyes and swivel his scrawny neck, trying to catch people looking covetously at his bag. And he would bounce the bag on my insteps. I thought this bouncing was accidental, but I was mistaken. He had to show somebody what was in the bag, and he had decided he could trust me. He caught my eye, winked, opened the bag. There was a plaster model of the Eiffel Tower in there. It was painted gold. It had a clock in it. There's a smashing thing, he said. And we were flown to a rest camp in France, where we were fed chocolate malted milkshakes and other rich foods until we were all covered with baby fat. Then we were sent home, and I married a pretty girl who was covered with baby fat too. And we had babies. And they're all grown up now, and I'm an old fart with his memories and his Paul Malls. My name is Jan Janssen. I work in Wisconsin. I work in a lumber mill there. Sometimes I try to call up old girlfriends on the telephone late at night 
after my wife has gone to bed. Operator, I wonder if you could give me the number of Mrs. So-and-so. I think she lives at such-and-such. I'm sorry, sir, there's no such listing. Thanks, operator, just the same. And I let the dog out. Or I let him in. And we talk some. I let him know I like him. And he lets me know he likes me. He doesn't mind the smell of mustard gas and roses. You're all right, Sandy, I'll say to the dog. You know that, Sandy? You're okay. Sometimes I'll turn on the radio and listen to a talk program from Boston or New York. I can't stand recorded music if I've been drinking a good deal. Sooner or later, I go to bed, and my wife asks me what time it is. She always has to know the time. Sometimes I don't know when I say, search me. I think about my education sometimes. I went to the University of Chicago for a while after the Second World War. I was a student in the Department of Anthropology. At that time, they were teaching that there was absolutely no difference between anybody. They may be teaching that still. Another thing they taught was that nobody was ridiculous or bad or disgusting. Shortly before my father died, he said to me, You know, you never wrote a story with the villain in it. I told him that was one of the things I learned in college after the war. While I was studying to be an anthropologist, I was also working as a police reporter for the famous Chicago City News Bureau for $28 a week. One time they switched me from the night shift to the day shift, so I worked 16 hours straight. We were supported by all the newspapers in town and the AP and the UP and all that. And we would cover the courts and the police stations and the fire department and the Coast Guard out on Lake Michigan and all that. We were connected to the institutions that supported us by means of pneumatic tubes which ran under the streets of Chicago. Reporters would telephone in stories to writers wearing headphones and the writers would stencil the stories on mimeograph sheets. The stories were mimeographed and stuffed into the brass and velvet cartridges which the pneumatic tubes ate. The very toughest reporters and writers were women who had taken over the jobs of men who'd gone to war. And the first story I covered, I had to dictate over the telephone to one of those beastly girls. It was about a young veteran who had taken a job running an old-fashioned elevator in an office building. The elevator door on the first floor was ornamental iron lace. Iron ivy snaked in and out of the holes. There was an iron twig with two iron lovebirds perched upon it. This veteran decided to take his car into the basement, and he closed the door and started down, but his wedding ring was caught in all the ornaments. So he was hoisted into the air, and the floor of the car went down, dropped out from under him, and the top of the car squashed him. So it goes. So I phoned this in, and the woman who was going to cut the stencil asked me, What did his wife say? She doesn't know yet, I said. It just happened. Call her up and get a statement. What? Tell her you're Captain Finn of the police department. Say you have some sad news. Give her the news and see what she says. So I did. She said about what you would expect her to say. There was a baby, and so on. When I got back to the office, the woman writer asked me, just for her own information, what the squashed guy had looked like when he was squashed. I told her. Did it bother you, she said. She was eating a Three Musketeers candy bar. Heck no, Nancy, I said. I've seen lots worse than that in the war. Even then, I was supposedly writing a book about Dresden.
It wasn't a famous air raid back then in America. Not many Americans knew how much worse it had been than Hiroshima, for instance. I didn't know that either. There hadn't been much publicity. I happened to tell a University of Chicago professor at a cocktail party about the raid as I had seen it, about the book I would write. He was a member of a thing called the Committee on Social Thought, and he told me about the concentration camps and about how the Germans had made soap and candles out of the fat of dead Jews and so on. All I could say was, I know, I know, I know. World War II had certainly made everybody very tough. And I became a public relations man for General Electric in Schenectady, New York, and a volunteer fireman in the village of Alpus, where I brought my first home. My boss there was one of the toughest guys I ever hoped to meet. He had been a lieutenant colonel in public relations in Baltimore. While I was in Schenectady, he joined the Dutch Reformed Church, which is a very tough church indeed. He used to ask me sneeringly sometimes why I hadn't been an officer, as though I'd done something wrong. My wife and I had lost our baby fat. Those were our scrawny years. And so comes to a close this latest episode of It's In A Book. Um, If you're here listening, thanks for coming back after all this time. And of course, thanks to Brett Whitaker for providing us with that interview uh, a couple of months ago and for being so patient while I uh, squeezed out the the lassitude that was uh, keeping me from doing it. So um, we will see you here next month. Um, I will be back in North Carolina, so we'll be coming from the Triangle. And uh, I am going to interview uh, someone here uh, at the hospital where I work. Uh, So it will be a a mixed uh, podcast, so to speak. The interview will be from Michigan and everything else will be from North Carolina. Um, We'll see you then. It's in a book. Hey, Catherine. Hey, babe. Uh, I miss you guys insanely. Be home soon. Bye-bye.